Welcome to Books That Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. And I was determined to articulate more clearly an alternative model of leadership, and I called it generosity of spirit, because fundamentally, the role of a leader in an organisation is to create an environment where people can flourish. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Gail Kelly. She's the first woman CEO of Westpac Group Australia and also the author of Live, Lead, Learn. But Gail is much more than a woman CEO. She's an interesting individual whose leadership style was born decades ago, but is still inspirational and world-leading today. A few years ago, I was given a newspaper clipping that summarised Gail's seven leadership tips. I've still got that newspaper clipping. Like lots of things about leadership that really matter to me, it's pretty dog-eared because I drag it with me wherever I go. I share it with new people leaders, I share it with my teams, and it grounds me every day when I strike trouble with my leadership. This book, Live, Lead and Learn, is those seven leadership tips on steroids. So let's get our speed read started before we have a wonderful conversation with Gail shortly. Live, Lead, Learn is Gail Kelly's leadership story, but it's really grounded in her background, who she was as a young woman and a Latin teacher growing up in South Africa in the 1970s. Gail talks about what life was like in South Africa, how she turned her back on teaching after realising she was turning into the sort of teacher that wasn't truly her. Gail has four children, three of them are triplets. She happened into banking and just loved it. Gail and her family moved to Australia in the 1990s. Her first role as a GM with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia Then she headed up St George Bank and took on the role of CEO of Westpac at the start of 2008. She'd only been in the job for eight or so months when the global financial crisis hit, so her first priority was to steer Westpac through that crisis. In 2010, Forbes actually named Gail as the eighth most powerful woman in the world. She was one place ahead of Beyonce and one place behind Lady Gaga. During that time, she shaped her lessons for life and business along the way and maps them throughout this book, Live, Lead, Learn. Gail says this isn't a memoir, it isn't a self-help book or an academic textbook. She's proudly describing it as intensely practical. And what she hopes with the book is that it triggers us to think of things to try, things to change and prioritise and reset. So what's in Gail's leadership formula? I'm going to give you a little bit of a taste here, but I want us to quickly get onto the conversation with Gail because it's truly inspirational and extremely motivational. So just quickly, here are some of the things in her formula for leadership. Learning to learn, choosing to be positive, loving what you do, having the right people in the right roles, having a passion for customers, delivering results, being generous of spirit, good with change, and living a whole life. She's at pains to say that family needs to be the most important thing in our leadership journey. So let's stop this and let's get into the conversation with Gail. 
Welcome, Gail. I'm a bit fangirly inviting you on here, so really appreciate you joining us on Books at Work. Thank you, Anna. It's a great pleasure, great delight, and lovely to meet you. Thank you. Now, I always kick off Books at Work with a simple question around where in the world are you and what's the view out your window like? Well, Anna, I'm in my home in Sydney, uh, which is in the Northern Beaches, it's in Terry Hills, if anyone knows where that is. And uh, when I look out my window, I see some uh, rolling grass, which is our lawn outside and lovely trees. And uh, and I see there in the corner, one of our dogs. I have several dogs and this one is a big, happy uh, golden retriever and his name is Simba. Gorgeous. Okay, so the name of your book is Live, Lead, Learn. And I want to... Um, focus the conversation around that. And I wanted to start with the live piece because you've got some lovely stories in there about work and life. And there's a really compelling story um, about that you experienced when you were at a business uh, meeting in Paris. And I was just wondering if you could share that um, and, and how that shaped your leadership. Well, thank you, Anna. Yes, uh, although it was many years ago, it was very memorable experience for me and something that left a mark on me. I was in Paris at INSEAD uh, doing a leadership program, one of those six week leadership programs. And this particular program was a very holistic look at leadership. And you were required to confront a whole lot of things about yourself and think about leadership in a whole way of life. So the relationships you had with others, um, your broader interests, your health, so a whole holistic approach towards leadership. and. Uh, it was very confronting for a lot of people. And uh, one of our colleagues who was in his mid fifties, he was very senior in his business, uh, had really pursued career with everything in him. And, and he had an absolute awakening. He was confronted by his own life, his own situation. And, uh, and he burst into tears. This is an alpha male, someone who was a captain of industry in his field. And he, and he cried, he cried in front of us. Uh, and his situation was that a lot of things around him were broken, although he'd reached the pinnacle of his career. Uh, his wife was no longer with him. He had two, two sons uh, who had spent very little time with when they needed him when they were growing up and they were now in families of their own and, and didn't need him. So his relationships or connections with them was, was weak. Uh, and then of course, he'd not pursued any other interests other than work. Uh, he was getting towards a retirement age now and sort of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? And then his health, we went through this rigorous health assessment, which was awfully confronting. And he discovered that he was sort of 15 years older in a health sense than his actual life years. And so this caused him to have a reflection on what is this all about? And, and indeed, even who am I? And it made me really confront a few things for myself too. I was a lot younger, I was in my sort of mid to late thirties, but I had four children who were 10 and under uh, a lovely marriage, and but I knew I was also career-driven and very focused and very determined and very uh, um, wanting to be the best that I could be in a career sense. But I got home and I said, this is not going to happen to me because I really do understand where my priorities lie. And my biggest priority is my family. My family must come first. And so it helped inform me uh, in the way in which I went about my career and my life. I didn't always get it right. I didn't always get that sort of balance right, but it certainly became a guiding philosophy for me from those young years. So I was interested to read in the book that it wasn't until you were well into being a CEO that you said that family was your most important priority. Why do you think it took so long? 
That's a really good question, actually. No one else has asked me that question, Anna. So that's actually a really good question. I think it was because all the role modeling in those years that I sort of grew up in banking was that people kept their work life and their family life very separate. And you didn't talk about your family at all. And, uh, and there was an implied assumption if you were very senior in an organization, a CEO, or very senior, that, of course, work took the priority. And, of course, you were to focus on shareholders. And, and if it came to a trade-off or a priority decision, you were expected to put your work first. So that was the implied sort of pathway. And, and I knew that that was wrong. And so, but it took me to be several years into being a CEO, knowing that I was going to break the mold. Firstly, by talking about family at all. And I've always been comfortable to talk about family because I believe in a holistic approach towards living your life, that it's not compartmentalized. It's not, I work and then it's completely separate as my home. I run one life, it's one whole life, and it includes all these elements. And so I started to talk about it because I wanted to start to role model this. And, uh, and, and But not only did I want to talk about family and the fact that I was heading off early today because I was going to my daughter's concert or what have you, but I also then started to put you know, uh, uh, policies and practices into the organization to enable people to live a whole life, to enable people to have flexibility at work. And so those went to policies and practices around supporting uh, women, for example, in integrating their, their child responsibilities or their home responsibilities with their work responsibilities, started to think about what times meetings were held and scheduled in an organization, pathways for people. Uh, making it institutionalized or, or a function of the way we ran the business that you could work from home. Remember, this was a long time before COVID days, uh, that you could job share, um, that it was perfectly fine to come in at, at nine or 10 in, in a morning because you were dropping children off. And on a basis, much more of trust. I trust you to live your life in a way that you need to live it, knowing that you will give to the organization in the way that you need to, to, to deliver. And it, and it really is a very powerful way to run a business. And it's much more productive. If people feel trusted, they bring the whole selves to work. And I know as a principal, if you're happy at home, if you have solid relationships at home that, that are working, you're much more able to be productive and happy at work. So it becomes a bit more of a virtuous circle. That whole concept of your whole life, I really like how you articulated that. And that kind of leads really nicely into some of the leadership things that I was keen to talk to you about and the whole thing around purpose. So really keen to understand what you've learned about purpose and meaning and why that matters. Well, let me start with the love what you do, because I think it is such a critical thing to being happy, not only in your career and your work life, but critically happy, critically important to being happy in, in your life as a whole. Because if you don't love what you do, if you find that day after day, it's eating into you. It'll start to affect your relationships with others. It'll start to affect your sense of self, your self-esteem, and, and, and erode you. So it really matters to love what you do. Such a profound message. And so I, all the way through my career, would sit with groups of people in front of me and say this, and to people in Westpac and St. George, you need to love what you do. If you don't love what you do, maybe you're in the wrong department. Maybe you're in the wrong job. Maybe maybe it's not fitting your skills. Maybe you're with a manager who's not supporting you. Maybe you're actually in the wrong industry. But whatever it is, get to the bottom of it. And you need to make the change. Maybe it's a change of attitude that you need. But something needs to change in what you're doing. So loving what you do is critical to your sense of purpose, to your sense of self, to your sense of self-esteem, and your engagement with others. So I was interested in the leader's role in helping helping that, help create that sense of purpose. Um, yeah, do you have a view around that? 
Absolutely critical part of leadership. Uh, I think the first thing for a leader is to, is to make sure that they articulate, not clear on what the purpose of the organization is. And I suppose I'm talking here from a, a senior leadership point of view that the organization needs to be crystal clear, not only on what it does. In a bank, yes, you sell mortgages. In a bank, yes, you open transactions, accounts, and so on. But, but on the why does it matter? What's the purpose? Why do we exist in the first place? And in a banking context, it's, it's quite easy really to think about you're here to help customers. You're here to help people. You're here to help communities prosper and grow. So there's a fundamental purpose. We're so connected in an integrated way with the economies and the communities that we engage with. And we're here to make a difference to the, to the lives of our, of our customers, the lives of the people we engage with, the lives of the communities. So critical that firstly, the leader, the role of the leader is to articulate what that purpose is, the why, because it creates meaning. And people want to feel that they're part of an organization that has a meaning, that has a, a bigger purpose to it than simply making money or, or simply the what of, of what we do. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to communicate in all sorts of ways and bring it to life and make it real and make it vibrant and have people say, yes, I get that. So for example, in Westpac, I would say to people every single day as you come to work, think about what you're going to do today to align with that purpose. What are you going to do today to help? Help a colleague, help a customer directly, help within the community. How are you going to fulfill that purpose? And when you go home, what are you going to do to say, what can you say you've done today to help fulfill that purpose? And it didn't matter whether you were the teller or the receptionist or the person in credit, the person in accounting and technology or at the very front line. Each one of us could identify with that purpose. And so the third thing then was to make sure that it's not just words, but that it's real. And so this is the heart piece, the alignment piece. As a leader, you need to make sure that everything in the organization aligns behind that purpose, that it's authentic. And so if your purpose is to help people or if your purpose is to put customers at the center of your business, then you need to make sure that the way you recruit, the way you induct people aligns with that, what you measure, what you track, what you reward aligns with that. Um, the, the way you, you price products, the, the way you promote products, the way you handle customer complaints, the way you, you manage your employees internally, Everything needs to align behind this concept of I'm here to help. I'm here to help you be the best that you can be. Now that's really hard work and you made lots of mistakes along the way and I certainly made many, but, but that gets to the authenticity of, of it all. And that's the hard leadership role. I love how you've summarized that. Thank you. Um, I'm keen to also just tap into that idea of leaders, leaders who are generous of spirit and what is generosity of spirit and what does it look like as a leader? Oh, I love that you asked me that question, Anna. It's probably the favorite thing for me to talk about. You know, I grew up in a, in a world, and there's, unfortunately, this world still prevails in many, many parts of, of industry. But I grew up in a world that was very command and control, and it was very male-dominated as well. Uh, and, and, and people lived in fear. I mean, the boss, my goodness, there was this whole air of, of aura around that person. And and messages came up slowly in an organization because no one wanted to be the one who passed bad news. No one wanted to be the one who got shot as a messenger. And you wanted to tell the boss what he wanted to hear. So it was, it was a very hierarchical, top-down style of leadership. And, and particularly post the global financial crisis of 2009-10, I, I saw this leadership style for what it was, completely flawed. And I was determined to articulate more clearly an alternative model of leadership. And I called it generosity of spirit because fundamentally the role of a leader in an organization is to create an environment where people 
can flourish and to create an environment where people can achieve more than they think possible. And the foundation of that, the very grounding of a generous spirited style of leadership is a deep respect for every single human being and a belief that every single human being can bring their best to work. And therefore a, a philosophy and a strategy that says, how do I enable this individual to bring their very best to work? And so that drives an approach that says, I walk in your shoes, I listen, I seek to understand, and I, I'm here to support, to coach, be honest in my feedback, but walk with you. And it means I get to know you as an individual. So every single team member, you need to get to know their own particular dreams, their own particular fears, their vulnerabilities, where they are in their career cycle, what they're looking to achieve, what are the things that are, they're struggling with. So that in walking in their shoes, I can best put them in a position where they can flourish. I can provide them the type of support that they need to be the best that they can be. And this drives an inclusive style of leadership. Now, a, a lovely way to think about what is generosity of spirit is to think about what it's not. And so We've all experienced leadership that's selfish, leadership that's me first, leadership that's siloed, leadership that watches people fail or sits on the fence and says, let me see how this plays out before I'll go and help you, as opposed to the type of leader who will reach out and, and, and if they can see things are not going well, say, how can I help? What can I do? Are, are there ways that I can provide you support? Or can I early on say, oh, I'm not sure about that? Or can, can we talk about the way this is going? Or early on say, I've noticed that, 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 you know, there's some behavioral elements. Can we talk about why that might be the case? Now, two quick things on this style of leadership, because a lot of people, their myths around the style of leadership, this being generous spirited. The first myth is that it's, uh, it's, it's you either have it or you don't. So you're either the type of leader who engages, that's inclusive, that walks in people's shoes, that looks genuinely at people and wants the best for them, or you're not. That is complete nonsense. You can learn to be a generous spirited style of leader. And in fact, this is a, a way of life. It's not just a leadership model. It's a way of living your life. And you can learn it every single day. I try to get a little better. The key is self-awareness. The key is to be aware of your own impact on others and aware of the way in which you're engaging. And so you can stop and pause and say, how did I make that individual feel? And, and is there more that I can do to help, help that individual have a good day? More that I can do to have that individual feel empowered, feel trusted, feel 10 feet tall, feel recognized, feel supported, helped when they're in a difficult spot and coached when they're doing something not, not correctly. So you can learn this by being self-aware of your impact on others and asking others for feedback, asking them to bring to your attention when you diminish someone or when you forget to acknowledge someone or when you miss something, ask them to bring it to your attention. So that's the first point. This is something that you can learn. The second point is there's nothing soft about this leadership style. People might think the old alpha male style, command and control, that's the tough leadership. That's just all mirage. That's much easier to lead from a corner office and have other people do all that you're bidding. A much harder leadership style is this generous spirited leadership style because it demands authenticity and it demands consistency and it demands you being out there every single day, walking the talk on this leadership style, being vulnerable, learning, uh, stepping up again uh, and every single day uh, being the best leader that you can be and seeking to create the environment where others can flourish. So it's, 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 a, it's the hardest style of leadership because you don't wait for a six-month evaluation or a 12-month evaluation to give people the hard truths about where they may be struggling. 
So people should have no surprises because you're giving those hard truths as you go along or you're supporting as you go along, you're making the shifts as you're going along. So, uh, but it's a wonderful style of leadership and, and truly one that creates a culture of people who bring discretionary effort to work, people who feel trusted, people who feel that their leaders have their back and they will go extra mile for you and they'll try extra, extra for you and their confidence will be built. And if your confidence is built, you'll step up and, and try more. So it brings discretionary effort and it brings a wonderful leadership of uh, culture of collaboration and trust in your organization. I, I was interested that you talked about soft skills there. That's, these are sometimes called soft skills. I've, I've heard people talk about them as essential leadership skills, which I think is, is wonderful as well. How does that style of leadership fit with your other piece of advice around right people on the bus and the right roles? How, how, how does that fit together and what do you mean by that? Well, let me make a few points about this because it is a, a very key. It's one of those seven, isn't it? That's uh, that's on that newspaper article that's on your wall. It's it's one of the early leadership lessons that I had that is the single most important thing in being effective as a, as a leader, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a, a supervisor, wherever you sit in the leadership hierarchy is having the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. So the right people around you. Because if you have the right people around you in the right roles, you have this amazing collaboration, this amazing trust, this amazing ability to tackle the world. If you have the right people around you, you can then decide and discuss as a team, what is the next hill we're gonna conquer? How are we gonna set about conquering that hill? What skills and resources do we need and how are we gonna back each other? So it is really absolutely critical. And, and I've learned this by making mistakes along the way, by having some people on the team that are the wrong people. And the worst type of wrong people are wrong people that undermine, wrong people that diminish, wrong people that don't walk the talk of, of the culture, wrong people that, that seek to create an environment where people fail or seek to capitalize on an environment where people fail, or the kinds of people who may say something, but really it's all about me. Really it's me first and my division first. So those sorts of people are cancer in an organization. They create a lot of dysfunction in an organization. And as a leader, if you have people around you who are seeking for you to fail or seeking to diminish your efforts or white ant your messaging, those are very undermining, diminishing sorts of messages. So. Right people is absolutely critical to the driving the spirit um, in, in, in an organization. So I'd like to finish off with just one other bit of your wonderful advice, which is around uh, being bold, digging deep, backing yourself. Um, and you, you make a plea for people to have the courage to back themselves and give themselves a chance. H how did you do that? Gosh, Anna, that's a very, very, very good question because it's not easy. Uh, and I think it requires a lot of, of, of determination to say, I'm really going to stare into my fears of failure. Because almost at every step along the way in my career journey, where I've had major forks in the road, whether it's career opportunities or, or leaving one country to join another or major uh, stepping off points in my life, I've had to confront this massive fear of failure of what if I can't do this? I don't think I'm ready. And, 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 and the, what I've had to do is, is really stand still and say, I'm going to confront this. I'm going to confront these fears of failure. And to do that, I have to draw on and remind myself that I am here at this juncture because I've got some strengths and because 
I've been able to deliver some things along the way. And because others think I can do it, that's why the opportunity has been put in front of me. So, and then ask for help is the other thing that I would, I would say. I'll finish with one quick story then. If I, I won't try not to take too long, but this is what really the most telling story in my career. So I was mid-career. I was still in South Africa, in the bank in South Africa. I was running human resources, general manager of human resources for one of the line businesses. The organization was going through a, a restructure process where functions such as human resources and technology and finance were being centralized. So my job was going to materially change and I knew that. So I had a vision and ambition to say, let me go to the center function of HR and maybe over a period of five years, I might be able to uh, land up being the general manager for HR for the whole business, the whole organization. But the CEO of the group, not my own line CEO, but the CEO of the group called me in for a cup of tea in a career conversation. And I was all prepped for you know, this conversation about how I'd like to see my career. And he put an absolute fork in the road in front of me and said, Gail, we'd like to think about you for running a line business in our group. The line business was the card business credit card business, debit card business, uh, issuing and acquiring side of the business. And it was the only part of the business that was still completely standalone. And I looked at him and said, but Richard, I know nothing about running a card business. I've never run a line business and I know nothing about technology that underpins this business. And how do you make money? And he rattled off words like issuing and interchange and, uh, and various things that I'd never heard of. And my, my whole sort of tummy was doing the somersault thinking, I'll never learn this. I'll never know. I can never do this. And I, but I said, I'll go home and think about it. And I drew up all the pros and all the cons and the cons of doing this job were much more than the pros, all the reasons why I would fail. <laughs> I could have run a line business. Uh, I had four children that were five and under. Um, I was coming from HR, which was seen as the soft side of the business. Uh, I, I was going to go straight in as the CEO with not any kind of induction. You know, I was a very different culture, that part of the organization from the culture of the organization I'd come from. And when Alan, my husband, came home, I said, look, I couldn't possibly do this job because look at all these reasons. I, I won't make it. And Alan looked at me and said, but Richard thinks you will. And, and, you know, why don't you back yourself and have a go? And then I said, but what about the children? And he said, we'll manage. We always have. What about this? He said, well, you'll never know unless you try. And so it was that digging deep, that staring down the fears of failure, that listening to people around me who say, give yourself a chance. And then once I took the job, that preparedness to ask for help, that preparedness to say, I don't know what I don't know here. So please help me and guide me and support me uh, on this journey. Well, thank God you did take that job because look at the history that and the legacy that you've created. Well, thank you. And I'm really pleased I took it too. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Gail. I really value your time, but more importantly, I really value the things that you've got to say. And I'm really excited about sharing them with our audience. So thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. It's an absolute delight to talk to you. And hello, everyone out there. And all the best. Good luck. And I hope you have wonderfully happy and fulfilled lives. I really loved that conversation with Gail and hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before we go into the Live, Lead and Learn Take 5, just a reminder that you can go into the draw for a free copy of Live, Lead and Learn. Just tell us what you think, give us some feedback, recommend books that we should cover and books that work, follow our Instagram page, books that work, or just give us feedback in any form that suits you. And congratulations to Leanne Schmidt, she won the book Forever Skills from last week's episode. 
So here goes with the take five from Live, Lead and Learn. It's pretty simple. One, choose to be positive. If you bring a positive attitude, you will be happier and so will those people around you. Two, generosity of spirit. Have a deep respect for everyone you work with. Three, right people and the right roles. If you're not sure, don't appoint. Four, do what you love and love what you do. Find meaning in what you do. If you don't love it, change it. And five, live a whole life. Prioritise yourself and your family. So that's it, one of my favourite books of all time, Gail Kelly's Live, Lead and Learn. I'm Anna Hughes and that's Books That Work, Making Work Better.